And now this week we're starting a new series. And so um, we're at this point in the life of this church where we've been getting together um, for worship um, six months for now. And something that began in a backyard um, in November of 2020, this has just been kind of this evolution, this growth of this community. And that means because of the history of this, for some of you in this room, you have been journeying with this community for two years now. You have been a part of this um, evolution from this once a month prayer and worship gathering, discerning if this is what the Lord was leading us to, to the vision casting, to the, to the naming of the church. I remember that day when it was like, yes, Good Shepherd Oak Cliff, this is us. And being really nervous, telling people that that was the name was like revealing your child's name to people and then the Lord opening the doors to this place here. So some of you have been very familiar with this. And for others here in this room, uh, and what will become the increasing uh, majority of this church over the years, is it will be people that have been connected more recently to this church. And, and, and this is like an optical illusion. For some reason, I feel like I'm tipping this way that all of the, the people here, but you don't have to get up and move. Um, but uh, Sam was going to go for it. Uh, is it warmer on that side? or so? I don't know. But... Um, but yeah, this will be increasingly the, the majority of this church will, um, will be people who have walked in the door because they saw a post on um, Instagram or they had somebody invite them that said, hey, you live in Oak Cliff, you should check out this church or uh, Google Maps brought you here. Um, there's somebody that had been coming a handful of times and, and that was his story is I lived in the neighborhood and I saw there's a new church, so I wanted to check it out. So as time goes on, there are going to be a whole range of people for different reasons um, that, that God has brought you to this place. So at this stage in the, of the lifespan of this church, the life cycle of this church, I think it's really worthwhile for us to get on the same page. And that's why we're going to start this series today um, that very simply calling who we are. And each week we are going to look at one of our four core values um, that we believe God has called Good Shepherd Oak Cliff to be. Uh, think of this like, you know, hosting a large neighborhood dinner party at your house where everyone is invited and you might have family, you might have friends, you might have kids and their friends, and you might also have new neighbors, people you've never met before. But everybody sits around this table with, with different levels of connection, different levels of commitment but that shared experience of that meal brings everybody to the same place. You're experiencing that moment together. And that's what I hope this feels a little bit like. Um, there are conversations that, that are our vision, our core values. These are not just things to put into your head for information, but these are values that are connected to the heart of God. And my hope is that that will come alive in this series. My hope is that as you plant roots here, if this is the church home that you plant your roots at, that not just our attendance and will be more consistent, or not just that you will you know, come and make coffee in the morning or plug in speakers or, or tithe, but that you will be discipled here, that you will be connected to God's vision for this place, and, and you will be nurtured in your own faith and your own journey with Jesus. Um, let me just say this real quick, what this series will not be. Um, this is not going to be an in-depth overview of, of all of our theological nuanced positions, our various interpretations of Scripture. Um, this series is called Who We Are, not 
hot takes, right? This is about our core values um, and, and not the nitty-gritty of our, our doctrine. And I was thinking about this. Alex and I are um, a little over a month away from welcoming uh, this baby girl into our lives, Lord willing. And as you can probably imagine, there are a lot of things to prepare for. Um, the one that feels the most important for me is getting a car that can fit three car seats because we don't have one right now. And, and I love research. That is an understatement at our men's gathering last week. Um, I, somebody asked me a question about like the bug spray that I put out. And of course it was like, well, I'd done all this research and this is the top rated bug spray according to consumer reports, right? So I do my homework on everything. So if you need to know about third row, best bang for your buck SUVs, come talk to me. I got it all in here, right? There are the things that matter for us as we look for this car. You know, does it fit three car seats? Is it safe? Is it, is it reliable? Is it comfortable? Um, you know, does it look cool? It's got a big one for me. Uh, can we afford it? That's also a really big one for me. And I forget about that one sometimes, but uh, I appreciate that, that you can get into so much detail about car research, right? I mean, I, I, again, I could tell you about which of these SUVs has the most cubic inches of storage, right? Like weird things that occupy my brain. But there is a lot of depth that I simply don't need to know, right? Like, like who makes the spark plugs or who is the manufacturer of the brake pads is honestly not something that I've done my research about. And I, and I think of the series a little bit like that, that we as a church, um, there are the things that we will encounter the most, our core values, the things that will be kind of bubbling up to the surface. And, and I might, I get that you might have this deep passion about spark plugs because maybe your mom grew up as like the distribution head of the largest spark plug manufacturer in the United States, so you care about this stuff, right? And, and there's a time and place for that. I'm not saying that our theology doesn't matter. Um, if that's true, I wasted a lot of money and time in seminary. But I am saying, in this series, and for us as a church, the first thing that we want people to encounter here is Jesus. It is not our, our doctrine, it is not our denomination, but it is Jesus. And so as a way of reintroducing ourselves, um, we're going to look at these core values. And I've printed them on a little card, so on, kind of on every other chair, so if it's not one under you, it was around you. Um, if you would grab this, this is this little printout that um, some of you might have got one of these months and months ago when we had one of our gatherings that I've actually tweaked a couple of things, but um, on this is some, our, our mission statements and some of these values. And so this mission statement here at the top is a phrase that has bubbled up from John chapter 10. Uh, it's this famous passage where Jesus refers to himself for the first time as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Um, and, and in this phrase that we would call our mission statement is really an answer to the question, why are we here? Why does Good Shepherd Oak Cliff exist? And so let me read what's on the top of the card there. It says, Our mission is to become a loving community following Jesus where our neighbors can encounter his abundant life. So at the core of who we are as, as a church is this prayer, this hope that God will grow us into this loving community where our neighbors, our coworkers, friends, family would encounter some distinct Christ-like love here that they would be drawn in, that they would see Jesus himself, and that they would receive this abundant life which Jesus makes available to us. And we're going to look at this phrase a little bit each week, uh, unpacking different 
parts of it. Um, but our, our mission, let me say this again, our mission is to become a loving community following Jesus where our neighbors can encounter his abundant life. And I hope that when you look at this phrase, when you heard me read this, you will see that there is this focus on, on who Jesus is and what Jesus offers to us. And so, appropriately, our first core value that we're going to look at is this phrase, Jesus-focused. What does it mean to be a Jesus-focused church? And I think it's asking, like, how are we actually following Jesus as our Lord? And, and how are we actually doing what he says? Trusting him, trusting his guidance, orienting our life around him, and, and most importantly, trusting in him for salvation and for eternal life. And we agree and we affirm here that Jesus was an incredible teacher, probably the greatest and certainly the most influential teacher who's ever lived. Um, the way that he unpacks the scriptures, the way that he shows us how, how to live. He gave us the most memorable messages ever, like the Sermon on the Mount and, and the Beatitudes. And Jesus was also the most loving person that I think we can get our, our minds around, right? The same kind of love that draws people in, like when we see Mother Teresa and we, we're just so compelled by these people. The way that Jesus cared for the poor, the way that he risked his life to, to welcome in the outsiders and rejects. But he was also lovingly firm in his pursuit of truth, right? John chapter 1 says that he was full of grace and full of truth. So we, we love this man, Jesus of Nazareth. But we also affirm that he was Jesus, son of God, fully divine, born of the Virgin Mary, right? As we read that in the Apostles' Creed, something that the, the Christian church has affirmed for, for centuries and centuries, fully God and fully man. And, and I was thinking about this, and I'll, I'll use this illustration again. I used it a handful of weeks ago, and I don't know, I liked it, and so maybe tell me if it's really dumb, so I'll never use it again. But think about uh, photography, Think about depth of field, and this, fortunately, our, like, our, our photographers, might have some photographers in here, but, uh, um, so depth of field is when you kind of open up the aperture a little bit, and it lets in more light, and what happens is that less and less becomes in focus. So if you have an iPhone, portrait mode, basically that's what I'm talking about. Um, you have one thing front and center that you lock your focus on, and everything else blurs in the background. And to be Jesus-focused is a little bit like that, where Jesus is this main object of our focus. It doesn't mean we remove everything else, but we want Jesus to be the thing which is front and center in everything else. Uh, it just becomes a little less prominent in the background. We want Jesus to be the first thing that people encounter here. And I'm, I'm not naive and, and I'm not dismissing or ignoring the very real things that I think people would object to with Christianity and the things which keep people out of a church, right? Uh, it's not as simple as saying, hey, we're cool, we talk about Jesus, we drink coffee out of mugs, so therefore that solves all of your issues and come be a part of this community. Like, the, the, the objections are very real, and whether it is past experiences or, you know, church hurt or, or abuse or trauma that people have experienced or, or simply a lack of belief that people want to go to, don't want to go to a community where people believe in this fairy tale God, right? Or maybe there's an openness to God, but, but people just can't get on board with all these other things that they think that Christians say and, and believe and if they feel like there has to be a certain political association with Christianity. Like just talking about Jesus doesn't make all of these obstacles 
disappear. But, but hear me out on this, because you probably have friends uh, that you would want to invite here. Maybe you have invited them, and um, like me, I'm like, oh, for I don't know how many of my neighbors that I've invited to come join us for worship. And, and maybe there's a hesitation you feel like, even just the invitation is going to remind them that you're a Christian, you're worried about that association, or, or you're going to invite them and you're worried that, well, what if they do come and Andrew says something super awkward and then I have to deal with that because Andrew will never see them again, but I'll live next to them for the rest of my life. You know, there are very real barriers that, that are, are here to overcome. And so, like I said, I, I, I'm, I don't want to be naive and I, I don't, maybe it is overly simple, but simply we want people to meet Jesus, like, we want people to encounter Jesus. We want people to interact with the scriptures and what he did and what he said. And, and we want Jesus to, to work in people's hearts. And maybe that they would get close to him, that they might be comforted by him. Or maybe that they would get close to him and they would be confronted by him, too. Like, we don't know how Jesus might engage with people. There's a, a famous anthropologist and missiologist named uh, Paul Hebert. And uh, he had this concept, it was about 40 plus years ago, and it's been really helpful for me, and, and if you've known me for over a year, you've probably heard me say this, um, but he talks about bounded sets and center sets. And I don't know if you're familiar with this idea at all, but he says a bounded set is, is, a, is a category of things which is defined by the boundary, right? Think of it like a fence. There are things inside and there are things outside, very simply. And to get in, to be considered in, you must meet certain criteria. You know, the, if uh, the category would be something like cats, right? I don't know all of the scientific biological criteria that defines a cat, but basically if you meet this checklist, you're in and you're a cat. And once you're in, you're always a cat, right? I don't know if the qualifications of being standoffish and scratching people that love you are part of that technical definition, but that's a cat, right? That is a bounded set, right? Like a golf club or something. You apply, you send in your, your application, they interview you, they say, yes, you're in, you pay your dues, and once you're in, that boundary, you're in. A center set is understood by the relationship to a common center point. Okay, so there's not so much a boundary that keeps people out, but, but it is about the relationship towards that center point. It's about movement towards that center. So you might have things which are really, really far away moving towards that center, but you also might have things close that are moving away. So I read this once. Uh, I didn't grow up on a farm, so if this is not true, please tell me. Um, there are two ways to keep a, your cattle is to build a fence or to dig a watering hole, right? So that's the difference between these two things, defining the boundaries or having a fixed center point that draws things in. And I believe when I read the New Testament, I, I see that Jesus functioned a lot like the center set. He was the focal point. And there might be people that would appear far away from him, like the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the sinners, but they were moving towards him. They saw something in Jesus that they thought was lovely and they were drawn towards him. And Jesus looked at them and he affirmed that and he said, yes, you are with me. You are moving towards me. I don't care how far away it seems that you are because of your moral behavior or your standing in society, but your movement towards me, yes, you, you are my people. And then a flip 
side, there were these religious leaders, these Pharisees, these um, teachers of the law who looked like the right religious people. But because they rejected Jesus, they did not see him as that center focal point. They were moving away from him. So they appeared close in their behavior, but actually because they were moving away from him, they were not considered one of God's, one of Jesus' followers, one of his disciples. And, you know, I think maybe this falls short because we are a part of a theological tradition. We do have beliefs and practices that some might disagree with, but, but I think at the heart of this illustration is, has always been really helpful for me because as a church, I don't want to be in the business of being gatekeepers. I don't want to ask for a certain level of moral conformity or a certain worldview for people to come and encounter Jesus. We believe that Jesus is the source of our transformation. It's not my preaching. It's not our singing. It's not, you know, did I print the songs in the correct order or not, right? Jesus is the one who saves, and Jesus is the one who transforms. And so to unpack this, maybe to be a little more concrete, what, what does it look like to actually be Jesus-focused? I want to look at a text that I think is the perfect picture of this. It's in uh, the Gospel of Luke. So if you want to open to a Bible or we have some Bibles on the table in the back or open your app, um, Luke 24, it's the fourth or third Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And we're going to find, look at this story here that it's interesting to think it might have been at a similar time. It was post the resurrection of Jesus. So here we are two weeks after Easter Sunday. And uh, we, the setting here is um, Jesus, after he had been found, the, or the tomb had been found empty, and the disciples, the, these women first found him, and then these disciples, they spread the word, and they started having these uh, encounters with the risen Jesus. So that's the backdrop a little bit. And before I read parts of this text, I want us to see there are two dimensions for us as a Jesus-focused church. Uh, really easy to remember, two dimensions for how we are Jesus-focused, and that is with our head and with our hearts. So we are Jesus-focused with our head and with our hearts. So let's look at this passage to see what I'm getting at. So first of all, a little bit more of the context. These two followers of Jesus are walking on the road to Emmaus, and it says that they are discussing these events leading up to the death of Jesus. And then all of a sudden, Jesus appears on the road with them, and he starts walking along with them, and he's like, hey, what you guys talking about, right? Now, I'm not going to read all this text, but basically Jesus is frustrated and confused at, at why don't they understand that this is what had to happen, that Jesus had to die and be raised because this is what the prophets had all been pointing to. So here, I'm going to read in Luke 24. I'm going to start in verse 25. This is what Jesus, his response was. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And get this, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So the first way that we are Jesus-focused is that we see Jesus as the focal point of God's story. The Apostle Paul, he sees it like this in Colossians chapter 1. He says, For in Jesus all things were created, Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is like the sun of our galaxy with all of human history 
orbiting around him. And so we declare this as a church. We say Jesus is everything, right? Jesus is the answer. So we, we explain this phenomenon to one another. We, we speak this truth to, to our intellect, right? This is what we do in verse 27 when it says Jesus began to explain to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, when Jesus says, or when it says here that he did this with Moses and the prophets, Moses is referring to the first five books of of the Old Testament, um, Genesis through Deuteronomy, that's called the Pentateuch. And let me ask you, where in Leviticus is Jesus mentioned? Like, where does he appear in Genesis or Exodus, right? Or or where does it talk about Jesus in in the prophetic writings of Jeremiah or Isaiah? Well, nowhere, actually. You don't read about Jesus in these places because he is not born for hundreds and hundreds of years later, right? But at the same time, if we're following what Jesus is is saying here, he is actually everywhere in those passages. Because all of the Old Testament, because all of God's story is pointing to Jesus. Like, could you imagine this kind of Bible study, right? If you think it'd be cool to be in a Bible study with whoever your favorite Christian thinker or author is, think about Jesus being like, hey, sit down with me. Let's open the Old Testament and let me show you. Okay, let's read Genesis. Okay, see this guy, Adam? Yeah, that's actually pointing to me. You know, just like sin entered the world through Adam, actually righteousness came through one man, me, yeah. Uh, Moses, yeah, he was great, but he was just foreshadowing me. I was the greater Moses who, who rescued his people out of slavery. All this prophetic stuff about the Messiah and the suffering servant, pretty neat, huh? That's me also. You know, could you imagine that insight of getting to have Jesus lead your Bible study? Um, small plug for joining a home group where we will have Bible study. Um, Jesus thought it was important enough post-resurrection to have a Bible study with people, so maybe we should too. Um, Anyway, small plug for that. Practically speaking, Jesus, for us as a church, to say where Jesus' focus isn't to like occasionally mention him here and there, but it's like the joke in you know, if you grew up in a church and you went to Sunday school and what's the answer to every question that's asked in Sunday school is Jesus, right? We kind of do the same thing here. But maybe in a more just grown-up way that we don't use flannel graph, but you have to sit in uncomfortable chairs and read the Bible and, you know, you're probably like, I'd benefit from some flannel graph here, right? It's really bring this to life a bit. But, but this is the answer to the question that we're always asking, that Jesus is the focal point of our interpretation of Scripture. You'll see this in our preaching. Here's a fancy word for you. We will preach Christocentrically. That just means Christ at the center of our, of our interpretation of scripture, just like Jesus is doing here in Luke 24. But I hope you also see this in our discipleship too, that we want to help you and to grow together in the ways that we orient our lives around Jesus, that we would learn how to be with Jesus so that we would become more like Jesus. We study his words in scripture. We look at his behavior. We we pattern our lives after him. We pray in his name. We think about his death and his resurrection and all the endless implications that Jesus is raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God, right? So we do explain this kind of intellectually to the head. But we would be an incompletely Jesus-focused church if we simply were to explain things about him. Because Christianity is not just a worldview which requires 
a certain intellectual strategy or framework. Like the goal of Christianity isn't to have people say, hmm, that's interesting, right? Christianity is this love-filled relationship with the living Jesus, the resurrected Lord who is still the ruler of all creation. Christianity is, is that, that relationship impacting us, that, that this Christ-likeness begins to swell up in us and to overflow out of us. It is about a people who are living in God's kingdom and, and participating in his mission. And so that leads to the second dimension of us being a Jesus-focused church, and that is simply to say with our hearts. So it's with our heads, but it's also with our hearts. And so as the world's greatest Bible study unfolded here in this passage, it says Jesus went into town with them. He was staying with them. And during dinner, let me pick up here in verse 30. Here's what it says. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And then verse 32, this is amazing, it says, And they asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Were our hearts not burning within us? If we come to Jesus only with an intellectual endeavor, we will miss this heart-burning joy and abundant life abiding and peace that passes understanding, unconditional love-filled life that Jesus makes available to us. And, and I'm not one who can stand here and say that I, I know this burning heart joy well. I, I, I'm not someone who in, in much of their life would say that the experience of God's presence or God's love is, is normal. I, for most of my life, life, I've been very skeptical of this, if I'm being honest, of, of all of the emotional and, and the supernatural stuff. But over time, through my own experiences of God's love and, and, and what I would call these tangible encounters with just his presence and, 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 and just experiencing him, um, I started to kind of put down my boxing gloves over the years, right? This defensive posture has, has been at ease a little bit more. That Jesus is still accessible through the Holy Spirit. He is still alive and ruling at the right hand of God. And, and I've come now to trust not only my own experiences, but to hear the experiences of other people and, and say, yeah, sure, I, I'm, I'm a, a skeptic and I ask a lot of questions and I think that's probably always going to be my nature. But I'm just really excited and okay to know that Jesus still interacts with us today. Uh, Tim Keller has been... I don't think I'm exaggerating saying the, the single greatest theological and pastoral influence in my life. Um, and I've shook the guy's hand once and I've had one awkward interaction with him, but I don't even know him. But, but the way that he teaches and preaches has shaped my life. And he's hardly someone that you would call charismatic or emotional. Um, he is a professorial type who wears tweed and he's more likely to quote dead theologians and interact with Nietzsche and Freud than he is to talk about experiencing God. But uh, Tim Keller, Dr. Keller, as uh, we think of approaching the, the later stages of his life as he battles with um, pancreatic cancer, and in interviews with him, I heard this about a year ago, he's, he's talked about this and he said, I've always believed in my head that we can experience God's love. I've always known intellectually, theologically, that Jesus can be felt, like this intimacy is real. But in recent years, he was saying, 
I have come to see that this experience of God's love is far more available and frequent than I've ever known in my life. And, and I think I've been on a similar journey, not only believing that God's experience or experiencing God's love is possible, but that it actually can become this normal part of the Christian life. As Jonathan Edwards has um, famously put it, the great theologian, he says, there is a difference between knowing that honey is sweet and having the taste of its sweetness. Or the call to worship that I read earlier, as the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I'll just end with some thoughts on this. Why does it matter if we know God experientially or not? Um, I think part of it is, is one of the truths of the human experience, something that can't be proven in a lab, but yet is almost near universal in its, in its experience, is that love transforms people. Ideas do not transform people over a lasting period of time. Data does not cause revolutions, but experiencing love changes hearts. And so the question of, of do you know this love? Have you experienced the, the warmth of God's love as we saw in that passage? Or do you know more about him? And you believe in him, sure, and, but you don't know what that experience is. And, and I'm not saying this to make people feel guilty. This isn't a test. It's not like, well, if you don't experience this, you're not a Christian because that is not at all why we are saved. We are saved by grace and what God has done for us, not how we feel, right? But I, th- I want us to think about this like any human relationship because we should desire to have an increasing connection with Jesus. I, th- I think that's just a, a normal part of Christian discipleship. But how does any human relationship foster love and connection? Like, is it through mere information exchange? Like, did you ask your spouse or, or a boyfriend or girlfriend at some, po- some point on every single date, now tell me more about yourself, right? At some point, it's just kind of like the knowledge, you want more than just knowledge, right? So when you think about focusing on Jesus, how, how would we strengthen this relationship? I, I think there are some tangible things that come to mind. There, there is a component of regular time spent together. There is the frequent experience of joy. There is the expression of gratitude. There is celebration together. Gifts are received, right? And the words, thank you, are spoken a lot. Affirmation is given. Words like, I love these things about you, like Sam was inviting us to think about earlier. Sometimes you are alone together. Sometimes you're talking. Sometimes you're silent and you listen. And so it is with Jesus that we don't merely study him, but we relate to him and with him. We say prayers of thanksgiving and we say thank you. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for loving me. We, we adore him in worship. We talk about his attributes. We devote time to him. We, we pray and sometimes we just sit quietly in his presence and we listen. And we do physical things too. There, there are the sacraments. In just a minute that we're going to come to this table, we receive the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and, and baptism. These things connect us to him. We serve the poor because he says, when you do this for the least of these, you are, you are doing this for me. John 14 has this um, amazing little paragraph where he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them loves me. So obedience connects us to Jesus. And then in the same passage, Jesus also says this line where he says, I will not leave you as orphans. And then he goes on to say that he has sent us the Holy Spirit who is within us. 
So this is the encouragement I want to leave us with, that this ongoing relationship is possible, but it is not possible if Jesus had not died and been raised from the dead and ascended into heaven and sent the Spirit to be with us. And so this morning, I'm going to invite us to come to the table with this in mind, to think about the death and resurrection of Jesus, not only as this intellectual thing that happened once, but that because he was raised from the dead, we could have this ongoing experience and relationship and connection to his love and his power. And it is by his grace that we as a church would have the joy of, of embodying that love and inviting others into the experience of that love. And so in just a minute, um, David and Vicki will be up here and uh, having the, the bread and the, the cup available and um, just take your time and, and reflect on that love. And, and a, a phrase that I would love to have us um, think about and reflect on is um, this place where the disciples filled with doubt, filled with questions about who Jesus was. And, um, and then there's this amazing um, line, I, and I, I'm just thinking of this, and it's, is it Peter who says this? But where, where Jesus is saying, what, are you gonna leave me now too? And, and the disciples, one of them says, but with you are the words of life. And where else would we go? And so I want us to think about this. That our, our, our belief doesn't have to be 100% certain. We don't have to be airtight in all of our doctrines. We don't have to have no questions or, or any moral failure. But that we look to Jesus and we focus on him and we say, all I know is that with you there is life and there is eternal life. Where else would we go?